The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we're back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but we have another exciting show lined up for everyone tonight on this uh, Super Bowl Sunday edition of West of the Rockies. Genevieve, how are you doing over there? I'm doing quite all right. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah, not, yeah. not missing out on the pump, Super Bowl? Pumping or vibing. I, know, I think <laughs> I, I still need to get into that American Super Bowl yeah. mentality. You'll get there. You'll get, get there. there. Yeah. Our guest tonight is Jeff Belander, who's the author of numerous books, all based around the paranormal. And we're going to be discussing one of his books, which is on a topic that I've been fascinated with for a while. As many people know, we cover a lot of paranormal topics here. And this one is really intriguing. And the topic is Communicating with the Dead. That happens to be the title of Jeff's book, Communicating with the Dead, Reach Beyond the Grave. So Genevieve, without further ado, why don't you introduce tonight's guest to the folks at home? For many people, there is a close relationship between ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, unexplained monsters, ancient mysteries, and other bizarre phenomena. However, for Jeff Bellinger, there is a special type of connection between all these oddities of the world. These concepts offer us a path to our past, a connection with our fellow human beings in our present, and a way to ponder our own inevitable future. Though no one can explain exactly how and why all these phenomena occur, they do very clearly hint at a strange link between various types of supernatural occurrences. Jeff attended Hofstra University and graduated with a BA in English, moving straight into the journalism industry after leaving college, commencing with an editor-in-chief position for the publication Main Street in Connecticut. To date, he has authored a dozen books that have been published in six different languages. Jeff is also the Emmy-nominated host and producer of the New England Legends series, the writer and researcher for Ghost Adventures on the Travel Channel, and the host of the widely popular web and cable talk show 30-odd minutes. Since the beginning of his paranormal career in 1997, the journalist has interviewed thousands of eyewitnesses to paranormal occurrences, whilst also remaining a sought-after lecturer that speaks at dozens of events every year, regularly sharing his wealth of knowledge on radio and television programs worldwide, with over 200 appearances on air to date. Furthermore, Jeff is the founder of ghostvillage.com, the web's most popular paranormal destination according to Google, and he also regularly updates his blog on jeffbelanger.com with video snippets and various upcoming events. In January of 2014, Jeff was asked to give a prestigious TEDx talk in New York City, and he's also lectured at Mensa's National Conference. And with that, I'm extremely glad to be able to welcome Jeff Belanger onto West of the Rockies tonight. Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us tonight. We really appreciate it. We know you're a busy guy and we're really excited to have you on. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Now, let's talk about this topic that ever since I was first introduced to the paranormal back in 2011, if memory serves me right, I used to be quite skeptical about this whole thing until I experienced it myself. 
And I got to see people using all types of things to establish a line of communication with the dead. But before we get into some of these different methods, I wanted to hear about how you got into researching these topics. So for me, it started, um, my first book was a book called The World's Most Haunted Places. And um, I had been researching ghost stories and haunted places really since the mid-1990s. And I was intrigued. Uh, I, I came at it as a journalist. That's how I started in all this, as a newspaper reporter. And so um, I would go to haunted places. I would research the history. And I talked to enough witnesses, hundreds at that point, it, now many thousands. But uh, I talked to enough people that I, I got this feeling in my gut. You know, I don't think they're lying to me. Some of these people have been profoundly moved by what they went through. And they have no reason to lie, nothing to gain. I mean, you know, it's... it's uh, if anything, only something to lose. You have to remember, too, in the mid-90s, ghosts weren't quite out of the closet like they are now, you know, thanks Correct. to all the television mm -hmm. shows. It was still a little bit, you know, you, you might worry about losing your job or getting shunned at work or the office or home or school or whatever if you talked about it. It was coming along, but back then it was still a little more closeted. So uh, I thought that that's really interesting. And so for me, I was, I was trying to answer one question, which is, are there ghosts? And and I, I'm not trying to answer this for everybody because I recognize we're going to get into the realm of belief systems. So I just answered it for me and I, I reached the conclusion, yes, there are. And at the time I wrote it, believe it or not, I hadn't had a ghost experience yet. That didn't oh, wow. come, yeah, I know. It, it's, I didn't grow up on a haunted house. I don't have the typical backstory. But again, I had friends that did and I didn't think they were lying. And But for my ghost experience happened in 2003. And so for me, the question the question was answered, there are ghosts. And then the next question is, if there are ghosts, can we communicate with them? And that was the whole impetus for starting my research into communicating with the dead. One thing that I liked about your book from the get-go was uh, you make a point of emphasizing the fact that we as a human race really have been, if not just fascinated, but have actively tried to communicate with the dead or have some type of connection with our loved ones that passed away. And, and you point that out in the mention about funeral rites and how in human history, you know, our ancestors, and I'm just reading a bit about your work, the history points to our ancestors being aware that there was something beyond this life in a physical world. Can you tell us a little bit about how you see the funeral rites being a form of maintaining maybe that link to our loved ones? Sure. So some of the earliest funeral rites go back you know, between 20 to 40,000 years ago. And what we found is, you know, there's, there's bodies that are buried um, in a very deliberate fashion. For example, the, the head may face north, the feet south, or maybe the head faces east to the rising sun, west to the setting sun, and so on. We know that the dead are sometimes buried with an abundance of flowers because there's pollen residue and things like that that are found around it. And if we're talking tens of thousands of years ago, if no one believed in a soul or a spirit, who cares? Leave the dead, whatever. Let the birds pick them clean. But people did care. They cared in a very big way. And it's so easy to think of our ancient ancestors as people that worship the god of the sun and the god of the moon and, and so on. Uh, but in reality, the first things they worshipped were ancestors. Mm -hmm. And every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings, I think, if you can hear that in the background. <laughs> so uh, There's another one. Yeah, it's another one. So, um, Ancestor worship was the very first form of spirit worship, you know, before the gods of the sun and stars. And I, I suspect there's no way to prove this. It's just this gut feeling I have is that someone saw a ghost. 
someone no knew grandma died or their parents died and they they saw someone that resembled that person in life and they said okay this person transcends something happens after we die and so they would they would reach out to those ancestors they would worship them in a way and and communicate with them they would leave out offerings for people food offerings even even though they had already passed away now that was really interesting to me why would they think to do that why would that get handed down generation after generation over time and then evolve, really? I mean, it evolved from just, you know, offerings to something really profound. It's true. And that's something that you see even to this day, the food offerings and things of that nature when it comes to remembering your loved ones. And I wanted to know if you could um, perhaps explain to us what your definition of a ghost would be. And <laughs> a secondly related question, um, are there perhaps more than one type of phenomenon that people are making contact with or experiencing, not necessarily just one specific thing? Sure. Yeah, the first question is really difficult to answer. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sorry about simple. that one. <laughs> no, hey, no so, so what is a ghost? You know, I think I've spent almost 20 years now trying to answer that question. So for me, the, the simplest, if you want the shortest answer, the shortest answer is a ghost is a connection to the past that's the shortest answer i can come up with it's the way for the past to commune with the present and uh, the more complicated answer is maybe a ghost is a movie that plays over and over again and we're able to perceive it in some way and maybe a ghost is a discarnate soul with some intelligence behind it that's here for some reason or some person or multiple people it's some sort of message across and maybe a ghost is a way for us to process our own egos in our own lives and our own place in the universe um and in reality i think they're all of those things they're they're a combination of all of it and also you know having interviewed now literally thousands of people and corresponded with tons of people all over the world about this experience we find examples where sometimes that ghost is not interactive in any way uh it, it pays no mind of the, the living people there and and it just goes over and over again and that seems to be more like what we might call like a residual haunting there are other examples where there are there are interaction and often it's the most common stories i hear are loved ones you know grandma passes grandpa passes uh, spouse children and so on and there's some form of message that comes through from the other side and the question that skeptics often ask which is a fair one which is you know how come they're not there all the time you know and, and if they were there all the time and this is why I kind of reject the whole notion of like some earthbound spirit that just can't move on. Because if I've never found a location that was haunted all the time, meaning we could go there right now and you could set up your cameras and just film it because otherwise I would have called a press conference, right? I would have, right. I would have had <laughs> all the media there. And I said, look, there we go. I'll open the door, start rolling. <laughs> Question answered. What's next? You know, yeah, what, what yeah, can I, exactly. I move on to now in my career, you know? So, <laughs> um, so on, on the one hand, I think, uh, there are as many definitions of ghosts as there are ghosts. So for every everyone out there, every experience someone had, it's a unique experience, a unique definition, much the same way that uh, I would say like any acquaintance you have in your life. Think about any acquaintance in your life from the person that you see once a month at the coffee shop who serves you coffee to you know a brother or sister to a, a spouse, a loved one, to an old friend. What's the definition of acquaintance? I would say the definition is for every single acquaintance in your life, and depending on how old you are, I imagine there's hundreds upon hundreds, that definition varies to every single person, whether it's someone who serves you at a coffee shop to whether it's someone you have a close friendship with, a lover, uh, an enemy, and so on. 
So I think same with ghosts. That's N a good now, answer. Yeah. <laughs> the second part of your question, I, I please say it again because I, I went off too long. I'm sorry. Uh, no, I think you actually managed to um, include it in your answer. It was, do you believe there is more than one type of phenomenon that people are reaching out to here? So sure. And and, then, and let me just expound on that a bit. So I think that there's also, you know, the fact that we miss people. And when we lose people, we can't help but reach out to whatever it is, whether it's their ashes, their headstone, you know, I miss you. I love you. This is the only tangible thing I can wrap my hands around. Mm -hmm. uh, how many people have lost a loved one and spoken to them out loud when they're alone at home? I mean, I, I would argue the vast majority, whether they admit it or not, is another question. But just, oh, grandma, I miss you so much. You know, you've only been gone two weeks, but boy, I miss you. You know, you just say it, you vocalize it. Why? What's that deep instinct from within that makes us do that? And, and I think that spirit communication is the answer. Even if we don't necessarily get a, a response, we're still trying. Yeah. Jeff, you know, uh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Uh, you mentioned that in 2003, you had your experience and made you a believer. Um, can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that experience and how that was the moment that all of these things became real to you? So I was in Paris, France, and I was down in the catacombs, nice. uh, which is 30 meters below the city. And I was alone. I didn't have anyone with me. Oh, uh, wow. It's about 10.30 <laughs> in the morning, and I'm walking through these tunnels and surrounded by human skeletons. And how the catacombs came to be is that as Paris grew, and Paris's history goes back almost 2,000 years to when it was a Roman outpost, and they had all this great limestone to build with, and as the city expands, you put your cemeteries on the outskirts, which is what Paris did, but over time, uh, the outskirts aren't the outskirts anymore. The city sprawls out and it circles cemeteries because you need more land. And the cemeteries were overflowing by the mid-18th century and 19th century. And they were digging underground to get more limestone. So they were hollowing out the ground like Swiss cheese. And the buildings are getting heavier and denser. And some of the buildings are collapsing because of the hollow ground underneath. And the cemeteries are overflowing. So they had to solve two problems. Close these tunnels and empty the cemeteries. And so they, they brought these, these bones down below, and there's 6 million human skeletons down there at this point, which is like 60 generations of Parisians. And as I'm walking through, and, and they're stacked in this very ornate and very macabre pattern, I was in one long tunnel where I could put my fingertips out in both directions, and I'd be touching skulls. And as I'm walking through, I suddenly see a shadow the size of a man move from the right side of the tunnel to the left and back again. And I mm. froze. And it, my head is going through this really fast checklist. Okay, what could this be? You know, is someone down here with me? Like, no, no one came from behind me. They would have literally bumped into me. Uh, is there a side tunnel? No, I checked. There's no side tunnel. It's, it's just a straightaway. And I ran out of every possible word but one, you know, ghost. If not a ghost, I don't have another word to describe what it is I saw. And at that moment, I kind of said, you know, this must be what all those people were talking about. I didn't ask for this. Uh, I didn't try to make it happen. I've been in plenty of creepy places at that point. You know, old castles, battlefields, ruins, abandoned buildings, you name it. And nothing had happened. But at that moment, I went, oh, this is what everyone's talking about. And that was it. It was one of those profound experiences that took a long time to kind of sink in. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, that we had the pleasure of being in the catacombs before. And I can picture exactly the type of uh, place that, that you described that you were when this happened. And I would have freaked out if I would have seen anything down there that wasn't, you know, a living, breathing person. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, but and also, too, I, and you get so objective about the thing. Now, I've had a few other experiences since, not a lot. You know, you get objective about it and you think back and you say, well, you know, I wasn't drunk. It was 1030 in the morning. There was no drinking yet or nothing like that. And, and you start saying, you know, OK, 
is it because I was scared because I'm surrounded by all these dead skeletons? You know, is mm-hmm. it because, you know, I don't know. I have no idea what it was. But in that moment, lightning struck and I was there to see it. And that's the thing about the paranormal, right? That I, I tell people, I, we've been on a few paranormal investigations ourselves and you definitely need to have patience and it's very hit and miss, right? You can't just expect that, okay, I'm going to try this tonight and, you know, you will see results. I mean, if you're lucky, you might get something. But in your experience, has it been like that where you'll go to a place and maybe nothing will happen? You'll go to a different place and it'll be just be active from the moment you set foot in it. Yeah, I actually don't even think it's fair to call it hit or miss. It's mostly miss for me anyway. <laughs> you know, it's, it's overwhelmingly miss. Just once in a while, something happens. Now, that being said, I don't consider myself psychic or sensitive or otherwise. I don't think I, I have that. I mean, I, I get that we all have instincts and so on. I just don't consider myself overly sensitive because I can walk into lots of these places and feel nothing other than I, I'm, I'm usually in awe and excited about the historical value of wherever I am. And, and in that sense, for me, going to these locations is never a miss because I guarantee I will get to be in a historic place where really interesting things have happened, where I've done some research, where I've interviewed people that have had ghost experiences. So even if I'm not where the ghosts are right now, I am where they were. And to me, that's really cool. Like that's uh, the same way that someone may feel when they visit a historic battlefield or monument to know that you're standing where that history was made is still a pretty great experience. And so um, in, in that regard, I never miss. But in the paranormal regard, I miss most of the time. Um, but once in a while, you know, you feel something, you sense something, you hear something that just seems out of the ordinary, that seems beyond normal. And then things start to get interesting. You know, I always see you extremely positive about all of these topics. And I've, I've listened to your interviews and watched them on TV. And um, I'm always you know, very inspired by your positive air. Do you ever get afraid yourself or do you just simply feel that there's nothing to be scared of? Uh, no, no, there's things to be scared of. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we were in a, a group of us were in Volcano, California, which is a town probably a little bigger than whatever room you're in right now. And oh, wow. uh, the population is 90, just to give you an, a wow. sense. Oh, very wow, small. wow, wow. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and funny, it was originally going to be this capital of California, but, uh, you know, oh, really? politics changed and so on, and, and it was moved to Sacramento. But anyway, so we're in this town, and it's around midnight, and we're in this, this little cemetery, a little plot, and this drunk guy comes out of his house holding a pistol, and he says, you guys want to become a ghost tonight? <laughs> And you go, oh, I'm really scared right now. And not so much about ghosts or, or you know, or demons or right. so on. Um, you know, for the most part, I've never felt threatened by anything I couldn't see inside these buildings. I've been scared about the structural integrity mm-hmm. of some right. of the buildings. You know, like, right. will this... About the human this, aspect. Right. Will this ceiling come crashing down on me? Is this where my story ends, you know? Um, I've been scared about rabid animals biting me. Right. <laughs> uh, tetanus shots. I've had plenty of those. <laughs> I've, I've never felt threatened, but I have felt... Yeah, I mean, you know, there was one time, and I'll tell you where it was. It was in Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. This is an old, old prison. And uh, in fact, I think it's the America's oldest uh, penitentiary. It's, it's where the word penitentiary comes from. You were meant to be penitent. Oh, Everything, okay. yeah, solitary cells and with a little window slit up to the sky so you could, you know, talk to God and talk to God only. Mm-hmm. When they moved prisoners in the early days, 
you were covered so you couldn't see anybody. They didn't want you to see any human beings. You were you were alone all the time. It must have been maddening. Um, so they sell, but it was a genius design. So it was built like a wagon wheel. So the guards could be in the middle, and all of the uh, all the cell blocks come off the middle like a, like spokes on a wheel. So mm-hmm. three or four guards could stand back to back, and you could see everything in the prison. Really smart design. And I was walking through various uh, cell blocks. Fine, it's in the dark. I don't have a flashlight. I can let my eyes adjust, and I'm okay. And I walk down one particular cell block. And I get halfway down, and I realized I was petrified. I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. I just became conscious that I was really scared right now. And I became objective about it, too. I'm such a dork that way, you know? So I stop, and I turn around, and I go back to the middle, and I go, okay, okay, I feel fine here. This is fine. Okay, I'm going back again. Let me go back to where I was and see if it's just my imagination. And I got back and around the middle. Once again, I'm really scared, and I'm looking around, and I don't see anything. And I just stayed out of there the rest of the night. And I figured, you know, we're all animals at the base of it. And if I'm having some instinctual fear to some location, uh, I go back there at my own peril. So that was one example where I can say I was nervous about something that I I don't fully understand. I'm surprised you can pinpoint it, though, to possibly one example. So I'm impressed still. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but for the most part, you know, I'm there to hopefully have an experience, but at the very least breathe in history. And I think that's the, that's the best part of this. I am connecting with the past guaranteed. I never, you know, every time, every time I'm doing that. And I think that it's, uh, it's a damn good story, you know, the the history and and it's um, something that shouldn't be ignored. It should be uh, embraced and, and, and all of that. And I think that's why, I think that's at the heart of why a lot of people do this. Not everyone, but I think it's in there somewhere. I mean, even people that really say, I don't, I don't want to know the history. I just want to go in and see what I feel or whatever. Um, I think somewhere in there, there is still this interest in the past. Otherwise, why would you be looking for ghosts at all? Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, talk about historical places and uh, uh, places that have some paranormal history around it. Tell me a little bit about Heightsville, New York, and uh, what happened to the Fox family there on March 31st, 1848? Because it sounds like this was one of like the earliest forms of spirit communication, a very basic form. Okay, so, so Heightsville, New York, March 31st, 1848, is where my career began. <laughs> that's, that's the line in the sand. Now, spirit communication happened for millennia upon millennia before that. Right. But that's a specific point in time where things, uh, it, it's, it's a moment. It's a moment in history. And what happened was that this, the Fox sisters lived in this little farmhouse and they sensed that it was haunted. Now, this is the story. I can't confirm this for you, but what I can promise is that there's a show called Ghost Hunters and Ghost Adventures and all this other stuff, and they all owe their roots to what happened or didn't happen on that day in Heightsville, New York. So uh, a, a rock was thrown in the pond at that moment, and those ripples are still rippling. So... They, they, the story goes that they sent, they hear this knocking and they said it's, it's a haunting of some kind and they sensed intelligence to it and they named it Mr. Splitfoot and they would say, do as I do. And they might clap out a pattern, you know, and it would knock back mm-hmm. and they, they established a form of communication, you know, silence for no knock once for yes and so on. And the story goes by the end of the weekend, uh, there were over a hundred witnesses that came and heard the knocking and the communication that took place. And the Fox sisters went on to become uh, famous, like the John Edwards, the Sylvia Browns of their day. They would go on tours. They would speak in front of audiences. They would communicate with spirits in front of audiences. And they started a movement called spiritualism, which is a, a bona fide religion to this day. There are spiritualist churches all over. There are still spiritualist retreats. 
uh, and that that still exists. And spiritualism is from is is the point where everything in paranormal investigation, psychical research, etc., starts because these spiritualists and psychic mediums start popping up everywhere. And I think they may they may not have made it if not for the United States Civil War in the 1860s. So you had this event just you know. 14, you know, 12, 14 years after, uh, you know, Hydesville, New York, you have this event where tens of thousands of people were losing their lives in a very quick and brutal way. And people wanted answers. You know, the violence was senseless. So many people lost, you know, at these, these civil war battles, uh, families ripped apart. And when, when there's senseless violence, we, we get really, we, we go back to the basics as human beings. We, we need, we need some kind of, uh, answer. And, some people may have found that answer in their church or mosque or synagogue, and others didn't. And so they sought something else, and that something else was often spirit mediums. So you'd go to spirit mediums and you'd say, I need to know what happened to my uncle, to my brother, to my husband, my son, whatever. I need to hear from him. And they would pay their money, and they would get some kind of answers. And some of those folks were absolutely charlatans. They were ripping people off. They were taking their money. Um, other people, there may have been something to it. But either way, that, you know, that, that whole movement launched everything, everything mm -hmm. today when it comes to ghost hunting, paranormal investigation, psychical research, etc. It all started at that moment. That's really fascinating. Uh, yeah, and no, I was reading the story in the book about the, the Fox sisters. And I guess the reason why it struck me is because that was the first method of communication that I saw implemented at one of the first paranormal investigations that I went. And at the time... It does seem silly, but I have been in a situation where there was a knockback. And let me tell you, it was pretty scary. <laughs> there was nothing silly about that. Make one point. So mm -hmm. to me, you know, you also have to look at what's the very definition of communication, right? So if you go deep into the woods where there are no people around for miles and you yell out, you know, hey, I'm here, you are not communicating, right? A commu communication by definition takes a bare minimum of two parties. Two, two or more, you know, to communicate. Otherwise, you're not communicating. You're yelling at a wall. Now, <laughs> right. we can't always prove that other party is there when it comes to spirit communication. But our gut, our belief, our sense is that it might be. Otherwise, we would feel sillier than maybe we already do when we're in a room. We say, hello, are you there? Can you communicate with me? Can you knock on the wall? <laughs> can, you, uh, can you give me some kind of sign? If something inside of you just said, there's no way that we survive bodily death, then we wouldn't even waste our time, you know, doing this. Right. I wanted to jump into another method of communication. And this one in particular, you know, it's, it's quite polarizing. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about it. And that's the use of the Ouija board. Um, yes. Yeah. We had the good fortune of interviewing Bob Merch, who you also oh. uh, feature in your book in the chapter on Ouija boards. And a uh, big hello to Bob. He's, he's a great guy. And uh, definitely very knowledgeable on the topic, but I wanted to get your take on it because you talked to a few other people that had some really interesting insights and experiences with the Ouija board. And one of them went on to say that the Ouija board can be used not only to speak to the dead, but also the living. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I'll be honest with you, that was the first time I ever heard of the use of the Ouija board in that capacity. So for me, another impetus for even researching all this stuff was I went on a ghost hunt many years ago and people were pulling out EMF meters and dousing mm -hmm. rods and all kinds of funky gadgets and things. 
to to try to communicate and the writer in me always wants to know the backstory you know so why why did you why do you have that emf meter why do you have dousing rods well what's what's the history of the emf meter what's the history of the dousing rods and you just keep going back and back and back and back and back and that's why i landed at, at the fox sisters in 1848 in hydesville new york mm-hmm. so now let's start to go forward so you've got the the civil war and uh, you know people dying and you've got all these psychic mediums that are taking money for, for readings and to communicate with your loved ones and plenty of charlatans, some of them being absolutely exposed. And so this product comes along called a talking board. And a talking board is a device that's just a, a piece of wood or whatever, cardboard paper with um, you know letters and numbers on it. And you might use an upside down wine glass or glass to, to, to put your hand on it and get messages. And now you've removed the potential charlatan now you are in control. It's you and maybe your, your friend. You're not paying any money outside of whatever you might have spent for the board. And this thing starts to become a bit of a phenomenon. But you have to also remember, when we're talking about the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, the literacy rate in the United States was really low. Only the minority of people could read. So if you can't read, a talking board doesn't do you much good, all right? Right, right. <laughs> it could be in Mandarin Chinese. If you don't speak Mandarin Chinese, you could be like, wow, it's moving. I have no idea what the <laughs> message is, you know? So, uh, so but, but then, you know, literacy rates start to come along and, and schooling becomes a bigger thing and education and so on. And suddenly more and more people can read. And this now becomes a practical way to do it and a way that you don't have to trust anybody but yourself. So the Ouija board comes along it's a brand name that comes along in 1891 but it's just a brand name for the talking board and if you interviewed merch there's nothing i'm going to add on the history that he doesn't know way better than i do uh so you know i'll I'll just invite your listeners to go back and listen to that episode again as far as the history but i will say this it's it's a colorful piece of americana that's been around a long long time and it's not going away so um the fact that we never evolved away from it is really amazing and a testament to the intrigue of this, this simple device. Now, so people start using it, and at the time, the Kennard Novelty Company was really brilliant about not overly defining it. You know, how does it work? I don't know. Don't worry about it. Do you like it? Sure. Great. Well, have fun. You know, you think you're talking to your dead grandma? Enjoy. You know, you think you're just, um, you know, just some parlor game where you can talk about, you know, which boys at school like you? Okay, have at it. You know, it doesn't matter as long as you buy it. And it, and it was wildly successful, you know. Um, so talking to the living, I, I, I got to interview some uh, clinical psychologists that were describing how there's something called a QWERTY board. And QWERTY is the, the first uh, few letters on a standard keyboard, you know, Q-W-E-R-T-Y. And what they were doing is they were taking people who uh, didn't have the mental capacity necessarily for speech but might have had enough mental capacity to um, get messages across in some way. And they were trying to use things like a Ouija board or a QWERTY board to help them communicate. One of the problems, one of the downsides is that the, um, uh, the, the, per- the instructor, the, the person that's administering it, can sometimes uh, put themselves into it. They don't mean to. They don't want to. They're just trying so hard to help another human being that their own human empathy gets involved. And they say, are you thirsty? What would you like to drink? And maybe they, they push the board to the M-I-L-K. Wow, milk, look at you're communicating. Mm. When we're wondering, is it really the person or is it the, you know, the person the helping, uh, helping it get to that message? So 
you know, some, so some people were using it to, to do that. Now, there are also people that believe that the Ouija board doesn't communicate with ghosts at all, that, that, that there's no such thing, but you are in, in communicating with your own subconscious. And I get that, you know, uh, I've talked to people that have said, you know, when they use the Ouija board, they tend to know what word is coming. And I think that's probably because it's coming from within. And if you believe that it is a psychic experience, then maybe you are the psychic. You are the medium. There is nothing evil or not evil about cardboard and plastic. You know, there's nothing inherent to the Ouija board. I've seen the factory where it's made. I've, I've watched the assembly line, you know, in a video. It's made the same way Monopoly is made and, and Othello and all these other things. You know, so there's no easy. black witches casting <laughs> spells on every board as they're coming off the belt. Yeah, this, uh, yeah, there's not like this, yeah, it doesn't go behind the curtain to the Wizard of Oz who, you know, puts a spirit into every board. Um, they churn those suckers out quickly. And what some people may or may not realize is that uh, publishing a game is very similar to the way books are published. So Hasbro is not printing Ouija boards every single day. They might only print them one week every few years. So you, you make a ton, you put them out in the stores and you put the rest in your warehouse. When it starts to get low, you either print it again or you... Uh, you redesign it a bit to rebrand it and get people to buy it again. So, uh, so anyway, so it, it's it's a kind of a special occasion when they're printing any one of their games. And I live in Massachusetts; they actually print the Ouija board here in Massachusetts nice. in uh, in Longmeadow. So, um, so yeah. So this this device comes along, and it makes me wonder. You know, maybe we're the compass, and that's just the needle. And so people have this psychic experience, they're getting messages, they're saying, whoa, how did it know I have a brother? And you say, well, you knew you had a brother, so don't, don't, don't get too excited. And then when you get too scared, you put it away. You put it in the box, you put it in the, sh the closet, you close the closet door, and you literally compartmentalize the experience. You say, okay, I've had enough of that. Um, I'm scared, and this, this thing is giving me information that's freaking me out. Whereas the information was always coming either from you or through you, and the board was just the way to get the message out. Um, so I, I kind of lean that way. I, I tend to believe that that's probably what's happening is you are just opening up a, a part of yourself that isn't necessarily open when the Ouija board is in front is not in front of you. If we're opening a part of ourselves, what do you think is happening when, for example, the people that have had bad experiences? In your book, you interview an individual who says that you can potentially talk to not just the spirit of somebody that has passed away, but it could be other creatures, I believe is the word that this individual used, that are not quite human or alien. Do you think that that's still just the person opening up themselves in that way? Or is this something that people should watch out for when they, I don't want to use the word play, when talking about the Ouija board, but when they, you know, they're they're uh, using this uh, device. Yeah, so that was Sean who said that. Sean is a Salem witch, if I'm remembering. <laughs> Sean, uh, who has since passed on, interesting character, and that was his opinion that you mm -hmm. can also communicate with uh, elemental kind of creatures or, or, or aliens or whatever. And that's okay if that's in your belief system and you believe those things are out there and you can connect with the energy of what that thing is, then why not? Why not use the Ouija board to communicate with it? That that's you know it is what it is. Now the danger of it, I will say this: if you believe that opening yourself up to the spirit world and whatever may be over there could come through to you, if you believe that is a dangerous endeavor, then you should not touch the Ouija board, nor should you touch uh, an audio recorder and do EVP, nor should you use dowsing rods, nor should you use EMF meters or anything else 
that people use to communicate with spirits. That is a consistent viewpoint to say it's dangerous because you don't know what's over there. I don't touch any of it. That is a consistent viewpoint. I respect it. It's fine if it's not for you. To say, you know, using an EMF meter is perfectly safe. Using dowsing rods is safe. Doing EVP work is safe, but don't touch the Ouija board is insane. It's, it's not, it doesn't make any sense in the world to me, except the Ouija board has a stigma. I get that. You know, in 1973, a guy named William Peter Blatty, first he wrote a book and then it became a movie called The Exorcist. And there's a, a very brief moment in the movie where Reagan, the daughter, is using the Ouija board alone and the, the demon gets in her and then goes on to possess her. And we know how that turned out with the pea soup and the head spinning around and all that other stuff. <laughs> And it was it was a uh, it was a writing device, a literary device that that Blatty used to to try to you know say make some connection between the demon world and, and our world. And it worked; it worked well. And there's been people that have propagated that over the years. Um, Lorraine Warren of Ed and Lorraine Warren. I've I've stood in her living room when her phone rings. This was long before the day of internet, and she's just like, "Oh, hon, do you have a Ouija board in your house? Oh, you got to get rid of it. Those are so dangerous." I mean, she's preached that for decades. She and Ed. And what's funny to me is that in 1967, the Ouija board outsold Monopoly. <laughs> so, oh, <wow. laughs> so, so imagine if that same conversation were to take place, if someone were to call you and say, Frank, I'm having troubles in my house. I think it's haunted. I'm really freaking out. And you said, well, I got to ask a question. Do you have a Monopoly board in your house? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they go, oh my God, I do. I do have a Monopoly board in my house. I've had it since <laughs> I was a kid. What do I do, Frank? Well, you got to, you know, cover it in sea salt and burn it in your backyard. I mean, clearly, that's the only <laughs> thing that you can do to save yourself. So um, I get how this thing could uh, open up a part of you that you may not be comfortable opening. And yes, that is dangerous for certain personality types, but it's all dangerous. Don't, don't put one aside and, and hold it above or below the others. Uh, I know people that have become addicted to spirit, spirit communication and had nothing to do with the Ouija board. Uh, I, I interviewed a guy that was, um, he, he was, he was exploring, um, ITC instrumental transcommunication where he was, he was, uh, doing video work where it's, you create a video feedback loop, you know, where you just, uh, you point a camera at the TV that's showing what's the camera's looking at and it creates this video feedback. And he would spend all night just looking for images in that playback to the point where he wouldn't be, you know, sleeping. He would forget to go to work and so on. That's, that's an addictive kind of thing. That's no good. That's, yeah. you, you you know, you know, that's that's not healthy in any capacity. So the, I could see how the Ouija board could lead someone down the same road. And I would call that unhealthy as well. Talking about ITC devices, would you mind um, just recounting briefly the little story um, about your first uh, encounter, I guess, with some form of electronic mechanism? You mentioned in your book you were taking apart, I believe, a toy car with your friend. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was <laughs> child i was i mean i was probably about nine years old and this uh it was an electric car it's one of those you know way back then they weren't too fancy you turned them on and it would kind of go until it hit something and then it would get stuck <laughs> so you had to pick Exciting. it up and move it yeah and, and you know i had a, had batteries in it and it had a, a very rudimentary circuit board and we were taking the thing apart and it spoke it said a few words and it didn't have a speaker in it and we're like well how the hell did that happen? You know what I mean? But we heard it and we tried to replicate it. We try whatever. And I can't, and again, this is now my, my, my adult brain that's looked into this stuff for decades, uh, looking at that childhood memory now through a different lens and wondering, 
did some message come through? If it did, it wasn't profound enough to remember the message per se, but it was profound enough to remember that a message did indeed come through. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, so that's interesting. Now, just for, for those who don't know, ITC or instrumental transcommunication is using some form of, uh, you know, electronic device pretty much to try to communicate with the other side. And it dates back at least a century to when oh, wow. uh, we, at least, at least a century. So um, the earliest claims I've seen, uh, there was a, a recording in Siberia of oh. a, um, um, I forget the name of the tribe, but there was this, this kind of like sweat lodge kind of thing where natives were chanting mm-hmm. and, and a, an anthropologist was using very early recording equipment and said voices were coming from parts of the tent that were not, it, it couldn't be. And so those, um, those voices were recorded. And so arguably that's kind of the very first form of ITC. Uh, EVP, electronic voice phenomena, would be a subset of ITC. That goes back to, you know, the 1940s, Frederick Jurgensen, 1940s, 50s, where he's going out into the woods with uh, an old portable recording device and trying to record the sounds of nature. And when he comes home and plays it, he notices he hears voices on there that he didn't hear when he was out there in the woods. And so that comes the the birth of of EVP. And so that's been around for decades, you know, more than half a century. And basically, anytime someone has invented some form of communication, whether it be a telephone, a telegraph, um, you know, recording equipment, photography, spirit photography, of course, you would call that ITC, I would say, you know, early spirit photography. Uh, Anytime someone had something that could record something, it didn't take long for someone to either adapt or notice that some of these anomalies, you know, and then believe maybe it's spirit related. Talking about inventions, uh, I wanted to talk to you about Thomas Edison. And maybe a lot of people don't know this about him, but he seemed to have some interest in the, uh, the supernatural. And, you know, it's interesting because as you point out in your book, Edison pretty much revolutionized the world that we live in. Some of his inventions that obviously we still use today are like the light bulb, film projector, and storage battery. Literally all things that make all of this possible today. Sure. However, he was also quite fascinated with the paranormal. It seems that he was trying to develop a method to communicate with the ones that have passed on. Can you tell me a little bit about how he got interested in that how somebody that's with a such a scientific mind could become interested in something like that and what efforts did he make to make this uh, device a reality so edison's a, a true person of science you know he asked questions and chased the answers wherever they may lead and he was like that his whole life and uh there's a, a great book that i recommend people get if they're interested in especially this part of his his work it's called The Diary and Sundry Observations of Thomas Alva Edison. It's been out of print a long time. And there's two first editions of the book. And those of you who are publishing nerds like me would say, how is it possible to have two first editions of a book? The original first edition is about 45 pages longer than the second first edition. And it has all of his writings, not all of it, but it's got a ton of his writings and essays on spirit communication and how he feels it all works. When the book came out, and this was, it came out after his death, um, family and General Electric, of course, where he was one of the founders, General Electric Company, uh, felt it was an embarrassment to his legacy. And so they had that stuff removed. And then the first edition came out again with all of it removed. 
and those those chapters. Wow. I am a lucky owner of both first editions. Very and, cool. And can compare and contrast the two books. So uh, Edison, I think the best example is he describes in, in one of his essays when he was a child, he asked an old Scottish linesman how the telegraph worked, and the linesman said to him. If you, you know, you know, a Dachshund, like a, a hot dog type of dog, you yeah. know, those long little, <laughs> little, little runt of dogs with little legs. He <laughs> said, if you had a Dachshund that, that ran from London, where his tail was in London and his, his snout was in Edinburgh and you, you pulled the tail in London, he would bark in Edinburgh. And Edison said like, that's a great explanation. I got it. I, I, I understood what he was saying and, and how it worked. And so Edison wasn't looking for like electrons and stuff like that. He just wanted simple answers to how stuff worked. And so in the 1920s, early 1920s, he became very interested in spirit communication. And he, he talked about developing something. And the device he described, he said, I believe that in the next life, our ability to affect matter must be really slight. So we're going to have to create something that can be affected by, by the slightest amount of effort. And what he described was something very similar to like a telegraph, where a telegraph, you just push this one little lever and it beeps or clicks at the other end of the line, wherever the other end of the line is, you know, a uh, hundred miles away, a thousand miles away, whatever. And so something that could just be touched by just about, you know, the, the slightest uh, effort. And he had said specifically, you know, he said, if we're going to solve this thing about spirits to, you know, communication, we're not going to use Ouija boards or, or charlatans, or psychics, or so on, we're going to have to be put it, put it in the hands of science. And he believes that, uh, you know, he, he had talked about repeatedly that he had a colleague who'd passed away, and he was developing a, a device, and he thought this colleague would be the very first one on the other side to use it. And he looked for it his entire life. Now, what happened to it? The, the way he wrote about it in his essays was that it was pretty much done, and he was just waiting for, you know, the right person, the right spirit person to use it where that device went, where the plans are for it, and so on, no one knows. Um, I don't, I mean, he, he wrote about it too often for me to think he just made it up and didn't actually get around to building it yet. Right. So right. I wonder if, you know, way back then, the, in the 40s or so, his family was just embarrassed by all of it and said, just destroy it, destroy anything. You know, the claim was he was swindled by spiritualists when he was, you know, later in life. And, um, you know, that may be so, but either way, the guy at least put the same mind to those questions that he did any other. It's interesting because apparently some of his uh, associates perform a seance trying to get some more information on this device. And would you say they managed to get some information or maybe it wasn't Edison's spirit that was coming through? I don't know. I really don't. Uh, I have no idea. And, you know, I, I, unless those things survived somewhere and it's mm -hmm. written in his hand and so on, I don't know if we'll ever know. But I, I think it's just great that there, that he left a testament of like asking that question the same way he asked any other question, the same way he asked questions of electricity, of motion pictures, of light bulbs. Um, hey, how can we make this work? You right. know, and I think that's just great because today, you know, you have to remember 150 years ago, you could be uh, a coal miner and a scientist. You could be a teacher and a scientist. You could be, you know, whatever uh, and do science and do scientific research and contribute. Today, that's not allowed. You are not allowed to be a coal miner and a scientist. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating to make my point, but, you know, we expect scientists to be academics with PhDs and so on. Those are people that are invited to the club and they're not, and they're only allowed to ask questions in a certain way. They're only allowed to ask questions that are provable by the scientific method. 
And the reality is some of this stuff just is not repeatable. You know, the scientific method means that if I do an experiment and give you, you know, show you how to conduct the experiment, whether you do it or, you know, Frank or, or Genevieve or whatever, all the results should be the same every time. That's, that's a proof, right? So the reality is when it comes to this kind of stuff, it doesn't work every time. No one's ever made it work every time. And right. so scientists say that's not science, and we therefore we're not allowed to look into it. And it's a shame because we could use their brilliant minds, you know, when it comes to some of this stuff to say, like, well, let's accept it as a possibility and see where it goes. But they know they'd be laughed out of academia, they'd be out of a job, they wouldn't be able to get along doing what they do if they were to say, yeah, I'm actually open to the idea of spirit communication. Yeah. And before we do run out of time towards the end of the show, um, I wanted to get a chance to ask you, what would you say is your favorite or at least preferred method of establishing contact with the other side, if you have one? <laughs> yeah, you, you're familiar with shave and a haircut, you know, shave and a haircut, <laughs> two bits. So you just knock, right? <laughs> right. And then you wait. And then uh, I think that's uh, honestly, I don't. When I go to these places, I don't really bring a lot of gear or anything unless mm -hmm. we're doing some kind of public ghost hunt. And we bring it only because they see it on TV. And, and I get it. You know, uh, yeah. sitting in the dark for a long time with nothing happening is really boring. So if your EMF meter lights up or something, that's more interesting. It, and maybe there's something to that. But I think for the most part, uh, a video recorder, a camera, because if something happens on camera and you can capture it, that's that's great. You know, that's really interesting. Uh an audio recorder, if you want to try to do EVP work or just at least document what's happening around you, to me, that's that's the most interesting. That's yeah. this thing that you know is tougher to argue with than say, "Wow, my EF my EMF meter flashed in the middle of the room." Um, that's a little more inconclusive to me. So whatever, and and I've said too, as people poo poo, especially the Ouija board, you know, they use these things like Frank's box or or um, a spirit box, which is just scanning through radio signals on, on like quarter second or half second intervals, you know. Ch -ch 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 you know, trying to communicate. And I've said, I've made the point, I said, you know, when I die, I don't know if I'm magically going to be imbibed with the ability to manipulate radio waves to get you a message. I, I don't grasp yeah. <laughs> how that would work. But if I saw you using a Ouija board, I could be like, hey, it's me, Jeff. I know how to spell, you know? <laughs> like, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I left a bunch of cash in the dresser in the basement. Don't throw it out. <laughs> you know, like, Clear my browsing history, right? <laughs> right, yeah, right. Delete my browsing history. Dear God, don't let anyone see that. <laughs> you know, so that I understand. I, 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 and, and I grasp like an EMF meter. If I could get close to something and make it light up, then sure, I get it. I could make it flash once for yes, twice for no, whatever. Um, I, I grasp some of those things. But um, some of the other stuff, I think we're just getting back to, to reading tea leaves, which is okay. You know, hey, I mean, however you want to express your spirituality is okay. It's just not my way. And um, just wrapping up, could you tell us about this Mount Kilimanjaro hike that you can do? Uh, it sounds like a, a bit of a climb, a little one. Um. <laughs> yeah, so it's 19,341 feet, but who's counting? <laughs> and so it's it's uh, I'm gonna climb the I'm gonna climb Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, which is in uh, Eastern Africa, mm -hmm. in March of 2017, March of this year. Wow! And I'm doing it for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and this is a place that's been on my bucket list. I've been training for it now since August of 2016, and raising money for for people that um, you know have blood cancer and blood cancer research. Uh, I'm doing it to honor my brother-in-law who died in uh, December of 2015. Mm -hmm. And it's been a really amazing journey for me and absolutely spiritual as well. You know, um, when you're out there in the elements and it's you in the mountain, 
there's something really profound that happens that's tough to describe unless you've done it. And I'm also interested on Kilimanjaro, ab above the 10,000 foot mark, there's a bunch of uh, bones that have been found, elephant bones and so on. Mm -hmm. and that intrigues me. I'm eager to look oh. at those. Oh, wow. uh, elephants are the biggest land mammal, you know, and mm -hmm. they can do whatever they want. They're so big. They can die wherever they damn well please. But some of them are looking at that mountain and saying, here I am at the end of my life and I'm going to lumber up there where there's no food uh, because something calls to them the same way that I, I think that mountain has called to me for several years. And so uh, I'm, I'm really eager to do it. I'm writing a, a little memoir about the whole experience. And again, I look at it as, as as much a spiritual journey as it is a physical one for me. Jeff, last question, and let's end with the words of uh, Thomas Edison. In your book, you include that he slipped into a coma, and when he uh, came out of the coma, he told his wife, it is very beautiful over there, which I I found quite bittersweet in a way. With these words... Do you think that uh, death is something that we should fear? <sighs> Only if you haven't done all that you want to do in your life so far. I get it. I get it. But at the same time, you know, having lost friends and family and so on, it is very much a part of the human experience. And it's one that we're not always allowed to talk to. And that's one of the things I love about the ghost story narrative is that when we're talking about ghosts and haunted places, the elephant in the room is death. We're all going to die. It's the one guarantee you get in life. And so given that it's, it's where all of us are headed, it's funny that it's such a touchy subject. So I feel like talking about ghosts and spirits and so on allows us to come to grips with it for ourselves. And that's kind of a, a wonderful thing um, because it is an uncomfortable topic. And I could see how one would fear death, especially if you feel like, wow, I'm not done living yet. But for the most part, it's part of the journey. And hey, if I got a way to get back to you and come on your show, you know, after I die, <laughs> what an amazing interview that would be. I mean, you'd get like a zillion billion downloads of the podcast. It would go right. viral. <laughs> Definitely. That would be totally viral. Here's Jeff. He died two weeks ago and he was on our show tonight. Boom. <laughs> although, although, you know, there would be people that would say we faked that. Of course. <laughs> that's the thing. I know. That's why I gave up trying to prove this to anyone other than myself. Well, I'll never convince everybody. And that's okay. I'm not trying mm -hmm. to. I'm not trying to convince anybody. I just mm -hmm. think that. We, you know, this human experience is not fully explained. It never has been. And when we explore the paranormal, we get to ask the very biggest questions that humans have ever asked. And that's why I do it. Communicating with the dead, reach beyond the grave is the title of your book. Jeff, why don't you tell people where they can find you on social media, your website and where they can get your books? Yeah, my website is jeffbelanger.com. You can also find me at ghostvillage.com, which is where I started my uh, my whole ghost publishing life. Uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I'm always happy to communicate wherever I can. I get out and do a lot of events, um, conferences, a lot of lectures, and so on. And and, um, and I also write the show Ghost Adventures. So if you're if you're into that, we're on Saturday nights at nine on the Travel Channel. And I just I'm very blessed to be able to do this full time. And and I love communicating with people that have had these experiences and. And learning from from folks, because I don't even pretend to know it all. I find the more I do this, the less I realize I do know. And it's been an incredible journey. So books are available at Amazon, bookstores everywhere. And um, you can find out more on my website. Jeff, your passion for this topic is really contagious. Thank you so much for thank you, taking thank the you. time to be on this show. And I encourage people to check out Jeff's book, Communicating with the Dead. It was such a great read. I have fun reading it. You make it really fun and informational. You include a lot of very important information in your book. So definitely grab that. Thank you.
Jeff, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it and best of luck with everything. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Jeff Belanger with us tonight, author of Communicating with the Dead, Reach Beyond the Grave. Check out the book. It's available on Amazon. Definitely check out his websites, jeffbelanger.com and ghostvillage.com. Pick up a copy and honestly, check out some of his other works. Uh, one of his other popular books, which I can't wait to read, is The World's Most Haunted Places, which he mentioned during the interview. Uh, sounds like a great read. And definitely check it out. Explore some of these amazing titles. Yeah, and definitely for anyone who hasn't seen New England Legends, it's got a lot of fun little um, points of information and um, historical facts that they throw in here and there, such as... Um, if you do go to jeffbelanger.com, where uh, he posts different video snippets on his blog, in, the, I believe it was November of last year, he had a little snippet from um, New England Legends where they explore the weight of a soul. And I think we've mentioned it on the show before in the past, but we've never really done a show specifically on it. But there have been people that have, you know, tried to prove the existence of a soul by showing that a body between being alive and dying, you know, that there's a change in weight that occurs. So when someone's on their deathbed, some, somehow their body weighs a little less when life leaves them. I think it's 21 grams. 22, I think it was, but, mm. but yeah, something like that. It yeah. was, it was something like that. Anyway, um, yeah. So, you know, they explore various avenues along those roots as well so it's always fun to check it out and i do urge anyone that hasn't ventured down that avenue to have a watch honestly fascinating stuff and this is the kind of stuff that this book gets you thinking about so again pick it up communicating with the dead reach beyond the grave by jeff belanger big thanks to him once again and before we go as always i'm engineer frank on twitter west of the rockies on facebook don't forget to follow the show on twitter at wotr radio catch our shows on youtube you can always catch the podcasted versions there, youtube.com forward slash WOTR radio. Don't forget to hit subscribe. It's right below the window, right down there. If you just glance down, uh, you can also subscribe to our iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and all that good stuff. You can find that on our website, WOTRradio.com. As always, I was joined by Genevieve, Genevieve Uway on Twitter, hosting No Artist Flavors Thursday nights, 8 p.m. That being said, Take care, be safe, God bless, and anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. Till then, bye-bye. Bye. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.